Welcome, one and all, to Revolutionary Spirituality, Episode 3, Capitalist Realism and the Spiritual Escape. Now, in this episode, I will be talking about uh, capitalist realism, as understood by Mark Fisher, mainly, and I will try to offer a spiritual escape from the confines of this uh, capitalist realist construct um, by talking about um, ideas such as the mind at large, as discussed by Dr. Broad and Aldous Huxley, and also um, by discussing concepts of heightened planes of existence, as um, discussed by people like Ramdas. Um, now, before we get into all of that, um, I would like to quickly address the rebranding that has taken place, which returning listeners will surely have noticed. Now, this podcast and blog and the website they're both on used to be called The Spiritual Anti-Capitalist. And for those of you, as a quick aside, for those of you who are currently listening on Spotify or elsewhere, I really encourage you to check out the website. The URL is still the spiritual anti-capitalist.wordpress.com. Um, but I've changed the site name and everything else and the podcast name and the blog name um, because I think that revolutionary spirituality has a much broader appeal. And the whole point of this is to expose as many people as possible to these ideas. So I figured a, uh, let's call it more marketable name for, for the whole project would be appropriate. Um, Content-wise, nothing is going to change. It's still going to be the um, usual intertwining of leftist politics and spirituality that you have come to expect from me. Um, yeah, so the only real actual changes is uh, are the logo and uh, the name. And if everything else will stay just as it is. All right, so with that out of the way, um, let's dive right in. Um, the concept of capitalist realism. Now, um, as put forth by Mark Fisher, it comprises many sociological and philosophical phenomena and economic ones as well, obviously. Um, but to put it simply, it describes the notion that capitalism is now, after decades of presenting itself as such, being perceived as a post-ideological construct, more akin to inert force of nature than to socio-economic dogma. And by presenting itself in such a way and being perceived in such a way, uh, it managed to position itself so that it preemptively strips any alternative of viability. Um, because you can't really... Um, because once you, you've become a, a post-ideological construct that is seen as, as the natural way of being, um, then all of a sudden any alternative being offered seems, seems utopian and juvenile. Now, um, as capital progresses through its neoliberal stage, defined by postmodernism and other such theories, it not it's not it not only just subsumes and defangs subversive ideas, it starts to actively incorporate them, rendering moot any resistance and making cliche the realization of this process. 
Now, someone who's, who's a very good example of this and who realized this, albeit on a different level, would be Kurt Cobain. Because Kurt Cobain railed against the, the, the pre-existing order of things, of um, the shallow, pink, positive vibe world of rock at the time. Um, but he also knew, and if we look at his diary, he was struggling with that, that his whole resistance would be tokenized, subsumed, and incorporated into the music industry. And the very, uh, and realizing that was already such a cliche that it was not really worth exploring or talking about or communicating. And that's the whole thing. Um, because subversive ideas are no longer just taken and, you know, turned into a product. They're now encouraged at times because this tokenized resistance um, can, can, can galvanize certain figures and that can then be exploited by capital. Now, um, this whole thing, um, this, this whole new capitalism, um, we can look at it like this. If Fordist capitalism was defined, as Marx put it, by rendering profane all that was holy and by stripping away everything until the worker is forced to have a sober look at his material and class circumstance, then post-Fordist capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, can be said to be defined by obfuscation and bureaucracy to a point of becoming a Kafka-esque caricature of itself. Um, because you had... Um, you have these this 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 decentralized, obfuscated, obtuse structure that still demands and has to be taken seriously, um, because it presents itself as force of nature. Now, um, a force of nature, a physical law. Let's, for example, take gravity. Like, um, yeah, you can fight against gravity. You can even leave. Cap, um, 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 gravity's grasp for a while, but you're always going to have to land. You're always going to have to come down. You're always going to have to grapple with the reality of gravity existing and tying you down. And that's the same way that this post-Fordist capitalist realism functions. It's, it's, in, it's, it's a framework, basically. And it's a framework in which many of us were socialized and in which we all currently live and work. And it's a framework in which the appearance of productivity and innovation kept alive by reaching these obscure, bureaucratized, almost arbitrary goals has superseded the value and even necessity of societally needed work being performed as efficiently and effectively and as possible. Now, these these bureaucratic goals that are reached and who are then audited um, they have no discernible effect on production in and of itself, and they seem like window dressing. It's like when a teacher needs to, um, a, a professor more at, at a university, just because they're engaged in research, they then need to present of a board of to a board of quality assurance the, the their best works in the past four years, and they're then audited based on that instead of looking at um, at individual students or at grades or anything like that. 
Now, in Fordist capitalism, at least the factory worker or any worker would be bound to a certain defined set of productivity rates that they had to meet. There was a clear structure and a clear antagonist, so to speak. Now, in, in, in post-Fordist capitalism, this whole process has become so decentralized and purposely obtuse that workers are now more bound to agendas and audits and prof and quarterly reviews and um and are now even forced to audit themselves so the non-work that 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 neoliberal decentralized capitalism has introduced into the process and i'm calling it non-work for a reason because it's not actually related to any productive effort even that is now being passed off to workers and it's it's absolutely asinine and this this entire contradictory and confusing system it needs to legitimize itself somehow and it does that by employing a big other a fictitious alien them uh, within the public consumer perception now this this is the idea that some undefined subject is unaware of all the failings and contradictions and of all the corruption and the greed festering in late-stage capitalism. Now, this perception allows the public consumer, and I'm saying public consumer because the loss of public agency and the postmodern rejection of meta-narratives have corroded communal bonds to a point where we are public consumers, no longer a coherent public. Um, but, but this... The, the public consumer is that can then um, bl assign blame to individuals while fully realizing that individuals cannot be blamed because systemic issues are too wide and too far reaching for any one individual to be at fault. On the flip side, however, the system can also not be called into question in any meaningful way because of the way that it has presented itself as force of nature. So punishment eludes everyone and the system just keeps on perpetuating itself for eternity. Now, not for eternity, because there is a way to break this conditioning. And there is a way to break this conditioning that doesn't involve the, the return to, to a prelapsarian past where everything still made sense. Now, the way to break this conditioning is through the establishment of a viable political and economic alternative that manages to take itself for as granted and as natural as capitalism currently does. Now, but, 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 such alternatives exist. I hear you scream while you bludgeon me with your favorite book of uh, leftist literature. And, and you are absolutely right. But, um, but these alternatives, as viable and as, as common sense as they may be, they are not perceived with that same patronatural reverence as the dominant capitalist ideology. And that's the whole point. And I think that at this junction is where spirituality needs to come into the mix. Because um, the whole point of spiritual exercises and practices is to quote-unquote lift the veil, to ascend to astral and etheric planes of consciousness. 
And once you have reached a, a certain point in your spiritual journey, and uh, those of you that have will know what I'm talking about, you start realizing that, that these planes of consciousness, these grandiose things that these mystics and magicians and practitioners talk about, they're absolutely real. And they're not real in the sense of, oh, wow, look at what my mind can do. No, 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 but like actual reality. Not a reality that our un unaltered waking consciousness is or even can be aware of, but a distinct reality nonetheless, or at the very least, a distinct layer of reality. And I, I truly believe that, that the very important work that a lot of, of these magicians and practitioners and whatever do, of introducing people to spiritual concepts for, for the sake of spirituality, um... I think that we need to deliberately couple that with, with political radicalization. Because once the paradigm has been broken, once the inert and fatalistically everlasting has been proven to be but small parts of a larger ensemble, fragments of one of several realities, then the stranglehold of not only the five-sense world, as the Buddhists would call it, but also of Fisher's capitalist realism would be shattered. And I think that that's very powerful. Now, this is not to discount um, leftist theory and practice and showing up at protests and actually interacting with working people on a political level. Not at all. Like, do these things. They're important. They're good work. But... To enact systemic change in a world where the system is no longer a graspable subject, but rather a force of nature, an unchangeable fact which we all know to be faulty, but cannot contemplate refuting, I do believe that to some extent we really need to get at, very, at the very least some people, and I think it's a substantial amount of people, to experience these, these higher states of consciousness. Um, by which we will abolish the firmly entrenched notion that the only reality is the one experienced by the ego and the senses. And we will open up the very substantial possibility of a working alternative, economically, politically, and spiritually speaking. Now, in incorporating, incorporating these two forms of approaching activism <clears throat> seems, seems very important to me. Because as important and tremendously respectable as all activist work is, like uh, setting up booths, selling newspapers, organizing mutual aid, reaching out to workers and unions to support them in strikes, um, as, as tremendously amazing and important as all of that is, I still believe that a substantial amount of people are too deeply caught in the mind prison of capitalist realism and will never truly be able to break out of it if not aided by some sort of spiritual practice and or insight. You know, it seems to me that, at least in, in certain circles, spiritual outreach could become an integral part of political activism. You know... Um, because there is this persistent idea that reality is a tangible, unmalleable thing. And this idea can be broken through. And the understanding that comes with this, the understanding that the sensory experience isn't actually you, 
and is in fact only an incredibly small part of the larger complex of planes of consciousness makes the, the that, that 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 understanding makes the concept of abolishing capitalism seem less far-fetched and honestly rather trivial though still of the utmost importance of course okay so this was a bit of a tangent <laughs> Um, but there is uh, one more thing that, that I do want to get into. Um, and that's the, the notion espoused by Dr. C.D. Broad and Aldous Huxley. That uh, all of our brains are permanently connected to a so-called mind at large. And are thus theoretically capable of perceiving everything that has ever happened and is currently happening everywhere at once. But, thanks to survival instincts of the ego, this connection, this, 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 this tube that, <laughs> that slowly feed, drip feeds us information from the mind at large, is sealed off by a valve. Now, depending on who you are, you may have been born with your valve a bit further open than most people's, by a virtue of, of your personality traits, like um, artists and geniuses, you know, Bach, uh, Mozart, Picasso, um, certainly Botticelli, um, Einstein, who was also a socialist, by the way. Um, these kind of people, Oppenheimer, um, their valves were surely far more open than that of, of your your everyday person. Um, but there is a way for us normies <laughs> to um, to open that our own valves a bit more. And uh, one of those ways, of course, is uh, uh, psychedelics, and the other one would be spiritual practices. Now, what both of these do is dampening these pesky survival instincts of the ego and allowing us to perceive a world unbound by time, unbothered by space, and existing only to accentuate colors and contemplate itself. And it is in that state of consciousness, in that pure, unadulterated and awesome awareness of now, that you begin to realize that we may not be living the communal way that we should as a species. And you also realize that everything is in everything else. The entirety of creation can be found in the tiniest atom. And none of us are meaningfully separated from that. We're all one spirit, though we inhabit individual souls. Now, Ram Das brought this concept up at a lot of his talks. Um, and it's this idea that we were talked taught to be separate practically from birth on. Like, because the people who were around us when we were born are usually people with these well-nourished egos. And they look at us, and because they thought themselves to be somebody, they project that onto us. And then we started believing it. We started believing that we were somebody too. And that's the cycle of how the ego perpetuates itself. And it can only be broken once we understand that, that what we are isn't the ego in and of itself. We are, we're the observer. We're the one looking at what the ego is doing. Now, this, this may seem a little out there if you have never experienced ego death through psychedelic means or meditative practices or whatever. But... Um, 
Ego death is blood curdling and it's frightening and it's confusing at first. But then you start to realize that if you're perceiving of this experience of ego death, if you're seeing the ego death unfold, then you cannot actually be the one who's dying. And that's the point when you realize that there is a lot more to human consciousness than what you had previously assumed. And that's, that can be a very transformative experience and can really put things into perspective. Um, now, talking about the ego, um, I want to quickly challenge a very prevalent notion, especially in Western spirituality. And that notion is that the ego is somehow the villain, that it has nothing good to offer, that it needs to be abolished, destroyed, annihilated, obliterated, and so on. Well, well it is true and it is important that you... Don't let your ego run amok and let it control you with its wild impulses and delusions of grandeur. But you don't need to outright suppress it at every turn all of the time. Like, the ego is, is an integral part of your sensory experience in the physical realm, uh, the place where you spend most of your time. And it would honestly be a shame not to experience the full beauty and bounty that this planet has to offer because you've become so utterly detached from everything. Again, this is not to say that you should let yourself be subjugated to your ego's every whim, like most people. But it does mean that you shouldn't treat it so antagonistically. Especially when you are in those higher planes of consciousness. Take a moment and look at your ego. Look at its bruises and scars and find out why it's hurting. And then heal it. Don't kill your ego. Heal your ego. Because among other things, among the things we talked about, that ego is, is pretty important for, for a good experience in this physical realm, but your ego and your body, for that matter serve as the conduits for the wisdom and the energy you want to bring back from these other states of consciousness and planes of existence. So neglecting those conduits is detrimental to your spiritual experience as a whole. Um, so yeah, don't, don't kill your ego. I mean, of course, ego death has its place and it's, it's important to experience it. And if you're looking to, to reconnect with the divine or the supreme oneness or whatever you want to call it, um, it makes sense to put your ego aside. But don't discard it entirely. You're still a human being. And um, you're still going to live on this, this very physical, very material plane of existence, which your ego interprets for you uh, for the rest of your life. Um, even if you believe in reincarnation for the rest of, of this lifetime, you're going to be stuck here. So, so you might as well be stuck here with an ego that's not completely out of whack, you know? Um, but a last point I want to make before we start wrapping this up is um, a problem that many spiritual practitioners exhibit. And it's namely this false and frankly toxic belief that because you've grasped some greater truth, you're now exempt from action. 
It's it's these phony declarations of, well, the universe is just unfolding as it should, or it's just their vibrations that are too low to manifest anything, as a response to poverty, homelessness, and other systemic injustices. You know, while it is true on a grand scale that the universe does unfold as it lawfully should, there's still the issue of malicious humans that have enough agency and material resources to tangibly worsen the physical realm for most people. And that's something that cannot be ignored. And it is selfish and foolish to think that any path of enlightenment or awakening precludes you from actively helping and supporting people. You know, most of these beautiful, amazing souls that we're all connected to, that we feel and to whom we reach out when we ascend from the sensory experience, they're still people stuck in bodies. They have lives that are very much susceptible to the machinations of malicious people and systems. And it is our spiritual and sacred duty to do everything in our power to ameliorate the material conditions of our metaphysical and planetary community. And in the case of our particular universe and reality, everything in our power means the constant and relentless fight against capitalism. The constant and relentless attempt to abolish this evil fucking system. And I think that these spiritual realizations, they can be a wonderful catalyst to see the world beyond the confines of capitalist realism. To not only understand that an alternative exists on a theoretical level, as if you're a leftist, you already do, but to truly and fully realize that we cannot only change our entire economic and political system, but our entire perception of reality, because we're currently perceiving reality as this transfixed, unalterable, and inescapable foundation of life. But it isn't, and we can change it. The power is there, it's within us. We just need to reach in and we need to seize it. And then we need to distribute it throughout humankind. And while we do that, materially ameliorate the conditions of life on this planet. And I truly believe that that's what each and every one of us was put on this earth to do. Um, so yeah, that's that's the episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed. Um, I, I, I hope it was coherent enough, especially the first part. Um, capitalist realism is a, a pretty out there concept and a concept um, that that requires a lot of sociological knowledge so distilling it into into a digestible format was a challenge um, let me know how you think I did um, <clears throat> if you aren't currently listening to this on my website I encourage you to go over there it's the spiritual anti-capitalist dot wordpress dot com and the spiritual anti-capitalist is all one word and all lowercase on there you can find all of my social media links like uh, facebook twitter and instagram 
and I would love it if you were to follow me there and you'll get updates on new episodes and a little bit of insights into my personal life and memes, of course. Um, and you can also find on my website um, links to my Patreon, my Ko-fi and my PayPal. Um, now, I want to do this show as full-time as I can. I may even want to step up the um, the frequency at which I upload things. So um, any any monetary help to help me reach that goal would be absolutely amazing. Um, if you choose to pledge a certain of ma- amount of money per month on Patreon, you will, of course, get perks like um, monthly AMAs, um, bonus episode, early access to episodes, access to scripts. Um, I'll probably be uploading a vlog tomorrow and um, all of these kinds of things. There's also a Discord that Patreon, mem- Patreon members can join. Um, so yeah, there's all kinds of things. Um, please go check that all out and, um, yeah, have an amazing and a blessed day and I will see you all around. Bye-bye.